Back in November, my producers and I went to Puerto Rico. It was two months after Hurricane Maria. Power was unreliable. Piles of debris were pretty much everywhere. And lots of people were thinking of leaving the island forever. Last week, we went back. This looks, I mean, this is a real change since <laughs> yeah, when we were better. last year. <laughs> it's, it's better. better. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's good for yeah. us. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And that woman you heard me with is Michelle Rodriguez. Leaving the island wasn't an option for her. She's devoted to her work there, running a community center for children in Sabana Seca, about 15 miles from San Juan. We met on my last reporting trip, and I wanted to check in with her and others we spoke with to see what life is like now, seven months after Maria. I'm doing better, I think. Um, time helps uh, to... to um, maybe gain regain forces and um get a a, a more um hopeful perspective things are definitely improving at Ninos de Nueva Esperanza compared to our last visit the library's open more kids are there still rodriguez says they have a long way to go we focus on on trying to not be um, like too much optimistic, like uh, to give uh, hopes that are not uh, real, but to focus on the things that we can control. So in that area, we are being optimistic. A short drive from Rodriguez in the center is Juan Orta's convenience store in Toa Baja. On our last visit, Orta was keeping the lights on with generators, which set him back $100 a day in fuel. He's got power now from the grid, but he's still spending his own money to stay afloat, which adds up to $75,000 so far. Plus, he says sales are going down because many clients have left and prices are going up. Orta explains that since there's no real agricultural production at the moment, things have gotten more expensive. For example, the bananas that used to cost him $18 for 40 pounds now cost 60 Luis Martinez doesn't grow bananas, but he does work on a farm, a dairy farm in Atillo, about 40 miles west of Juan Orta's convenience store in Toa Baja. Now, back when we met in November, 800 cows were housed at the Vaqueria Seba del Mar. It's a dairy with ocean views. And now there are about 1,000 animals on the 220-acre site. They're not sick anymore. New structures have been built to provide much-needed shade, but at the cost of a quarter of a million dollars. And, yeah, the investment's paying off. The livestock's doing pretty well, says Martinez. They've gained weight. Production is up to 18,000 liters a day. But there's a downside, and that's the price that dairies get for their milk, around 70 cents now compared to 82 cents before the storm. And then there's the worry of another natural disaster with hurricane season around the corner. A short drive from Vaqueria Seba del Mar is Glorimar Rivera's house. It's turquoise and yellow concrete, and she's building an addition upstairs. Rivera lives here with her parents and young son. And a couple months ago, power lines draped from fallen poles right outside her house. Now they're gone, and she's doing better, but power is still a concern. Estoy bien. Estoy bien después de todo. 
acoplándome nuevamente después del revolú, después de la tormenta. People don't see things the same way, Rivera says, because you never know when the lights will go out. She's working more now, mostly night shifts at Walmart, but she says she's still living day by day. Michelle, Juan, Luis, and Glorimar are just a few of the people we met on the island. They're trying to carve out something resembling normal in the recovery from Maria, navigating school closures, power problems, and housing. And today, we're going to bring you an update on the island's economy, as well as conversations with the people in charge. As a nonprofit news organization, Marketplace is on a mission, one that's really all about you. Everything we do is aimed at making people smarter about the financial forces that govern our lives, encouraging civil discourse, and making better decisions for you and your family. And we've been doing it for almost 30 years, but we are always thinking bigger and better, and that's where we need your help. The more people who support Marketplace, the more we can do to raise economic intelligence across the country. Right now, your donation will go twice as far thanks to a dollar-for-dollar match from Candida. Time is running out on the challenge, so please become a Marketplace investor today in whatever amount works for you at Marketplace.org. And thanks. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. Puerto Rico will get more than $18 billion from the Department of Housing and Urban Development to rebuild housing and infrastructure. The money will be divvied up into grants and doled out, a process that could take us into 2019. In the meantime, people are still living life post-hurricane. Before the storm hit, thousands of people in Puerto Rico lived in informal housing, places built in flood zones or without permits or a deed. And that's made getting money to rebuild really hard. Marketplace's Peter Balnon Rosen set off across San Juan to learn more. Luis Malave's house in the San Juan Barrio, Israel, was never really big. But to him, those plywood walls were home. Then Maria came. You gotta go through the, all the trash over here. And today, to get to what's left, you climb over its former self, a four-foot-high pile of rotting plywood and snap tables. I started living over here in 2002. It was my house, but I, I wasn't the owner there. Malave has an informal arrangement to stay on the land, but no lease, no insurance, and no FEMA funding for repairs. He sleeps in what's still standing, a single room with a blue tarp for a roof, and a piece of tin for a door. It rained maybe 12 hours ago, but... A bucket still catches drips from a wooden beam up top. Well, you have to prove ownership to be able to get the FEMA help. That's Michelle Sugden Castillo, a consultant with housing nonprofits in Puerto Rico. People with no title or lease can submit a written statement to FEMA about their situation, and FEMA says they'll consider them. We've seen that there's a high denial of FEMA cases. FEMA has gotten over 1.1 million housing assistance applications from people living in all situations. But only 40 percent, two of every five, get approved. FEMA says that can be because of multiple applications from the same household and people need to meet certain homeowner standards. But even when assistance comes through, for some, it's not enough. My name is Orlando Orlando Ortiz lives in another part of San Juan, Via Palmera. He knows all about life with a blue tarp for a roof. He's lived this way for months. 
He knows the light and heat that flow through the tarp, making the house like a blue oven during the day. And he knows the bats and pigeons that get in at night. But what he doesn't know is he got more money than most to fix the place. They gave me $6,200. Ortiz got $6,200 from FEMA, and their average housing award in Puerto Rico is $2,700. Still, he estimates it'll cost over $12,000 to fix the roof. I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen for Marketplace. Seven months after Maria, if you look out across some areas of San Juan, you can still see tons of blue tarps in place of roofs. Fifteen miles over, the municipality of Toa Baja was hit even harder. Betito Marquez is mayor of Toa Baja. The town is slated to get a chunk of that $18 billion in HUD funding. He says of the area's 27,000 houses, more than 15,000 were ruined by flooding and winds. With limited affordable housing available, Marquez says his government will need to work with communities to figure out what's next. Well, right now we're in a much better position than where we were, uh, obviously, a couple months ago. That's Ricardo Alvarez-Diaz. He's an architect and used to be head of the Puerto Rico Builders Association. I asked him if the HUD money should be used to build people living in informal houses, new ones. Not houses, but communities. Hmm. If you develop a community, you're developing hopefully homes, retail, schools, and so forth. So you're really focusing on quality of life more than only housing. What's standing in the way of that happening, do you think? Political will. That's my opinion. Mixed-income communities work, but it requires political will. Why? Because when you're going to relocate families, you need to educate them. You need to make sure they understand that this is a matter of safety, that if you choose to stay there, you're putting yourself and your family at risk. One of the things I'm thinking of, though, is if you say to people, oh, the Roseo administration wants to help you move to some other place, they say, I don't trust that guy. I don't, I don't, I don't believe them. I agree. For me, a government is not the one that should do the job. The government should be a facilitator. Their responsibility lies on the community, private sector, and the NGOs. You know, if someone were just to step back and say, why is affordable housing such an issue in Puerto Rico? What would you say? Why? Puerto Rico is so unique. It's a place of contradictions. Puerto Rico has the highest ownership of homes in all the U.S. 69% of the people own their homes here. There's only 500,000 mortgages. So people own their properties. But just because you have homes doesn't mean they're the right homes. A lot of the units that are there are worth demolishing. They can be reused. We have to do whatever we can to create not homes. I want to stress that, to create communities. So when the people come back here, and they will come back, they will want to stay. But all of these things still have to happen. The plans have to be approved. The units have to be built. How long does the federal government and the island government have before people give up and say, forget it, I'm staying in Florida forever? The reason people leave the island is not necessarily because they don't have an adequate home yet. The reason people leave the island is because they don't have an adequate opportunity when it comes to jobs. So let's go back to your question. What do we do now? Well, Every time you look at an economy, the thing that takes them out of the recession, it's home building. We are getting a great opportunity. And I say this with a lot of empathy because some people and some families have lost it all. And you have to say with empathy because some people have lost their lives. But 
this is the last big chance we're going to get to hopefully do better, sustainable, economic Puerto Rico, that six years from now, when those monies stop coming, people don't leave again. That was architect Ricardo Alvarez-Diaz. You just heard about housing in Puerto Rico. Another huge issue is education. The school system is in the middle of a massive reorganization. It involves closing 280 public schools, combining resources, and introducing charter schools and vouchers. Yes, it's about the hurricane, but also so much more than that. It's pretty normal to have a bunch of teachers, parents, and kids outside an elementary school at 7.45 in the morning. Generally, though, you don't see a seven-year-old chanting with a protest sign. They're saying, I want a school that's open. And they're referring to John F. Kennedy Elementary School in Toa Baja, about 15 miles outside San Juan. JFK is one of 280 public schools slated to close over the summer. That's roughly a third of the island's schools. Enrollment has dropped across Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria. The Education Department says it's down by 38,000 students since May. Uria Vargas sends her daughter Gabriela to JFK. She's nine, and she's a special ed student. If the school closes, Vargas says, the next school closest to them is 30 minutes away. Even though she has a car, she says getting there would be really difficult and it would really affect them. What the island's government wants to do is consolidate schools, some with declining enrollment and some with lower test scores or buildings in bad shape. Teachers' unions are fighting the closures and a plan from the governor that would allow for charter school and voucher pilot programs starting in 2019. (laughs) JFK Elementary's building has a pretty courtyard and cheerful decorations. Online records show the school's test scores need work and that the number of students here has declined in the past few years as the island suffered its debt crisis. But teachers argue that the numbers are bouncing back even as they note that the principal left for the mainland after Maria. Pirette Hidalgo's second-grade classroom is decorated with drawings of Spider-Man. The room's door shows him climbing through a city at night. Inside, 15 students sit in little groups, learning about important historical sites in Puerto Rico. But there's a sign in the classroom that underscores how tense things are right now. It reads, education is not for sale. The whole situation feels raw, like no one trusts each other. And up front, on the whiteboard, it says, Julia Kelleher wants to close my school. Kelleher is the Secretary of Education. She worked as a consultant to Puerto Rico schools for about a decade, but only started in this job last year. She says the closure plan could save $150 million. She's both ambitious and the target of a lot of anger. In protests like the one at JFK, people chant, Julia, go home. I asked Kelleher why she thinks things have gotten so nasty. I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. People are being confronted with a reality that has been hidden for the last 10 to 15 years. The debt crisis and $73 billion didn't just pop up, right? So someone coming in to do the things and being honest 
and transparent about the why and making those tough decisions doesn't make it hurt any less. And then, of course, in the middle of all of this are the kids. Many went through the storm or lost homes. JFK's social worker, Maria de Lourdes Torres, says they're already traumatized. She says she lost her voice because of the stress. And the entire government isn't visualizing the specific experience of the children, the need of the children. A loss, another loss. These are a lot of losses at one time. They're mourning, and the kids need to recover. I mean, our kids lost everything. What else can I say? You heard a little bit of Puerto Rico's Secretary of Education, Julia Kelleher, in that piece. We spoke for a while, and she told me that her focus isn't on how many schools are closing, but on developing a system for the changing needs of Puerto Rico. So how we came up with this list really had much more to do with understanding what the the negative patterns or the ineffective patterns of resource utilization were, what we think the system should be, and to try to identify sort of what's the right size. Now, bearing in mind the unique geography that characterizes Puerto Rico, it's not that easy to just go, you know, up and down a mountain. So that's that's one thing. But then we looked at a, a series of other criteria. There are some buildings that are so old and have a physical plant that is so deteriorated that it would cost more to try and repair it than to just try to find a new placement for the students. We have schools where you don't have a full faculty. So then we looked at that, that at, a, at a wide range of factors. And once we knew how many we should have, then we looked at the number of schools in each of those municipalities and said, how could they be reorganized? So you see on the list schools that have meet those criteria, but you also see schools on the list that are necessary to consolidate with others in order to right-size the system. Is New Orleans the model? I've noticed you tweet about it. Obviously, a lot of people like to talk about the recovery district. Is that the model? I don't think so. We mirror more a D.C. model than anything else, except D.C. didn't have a hurricane. Right. They had a fiscal oversight board. They, they decentralized their system and broke up a unitary system, created a state office of education, put in a new chancellor, and started to implement reform. So we look more like that. I think the charter environment here is a lot different than it was in New Orleans. We opened up all our schools. I mean, probably 75% of the schools were open by mid-November. New Orleans was a place where four months later, they got five schools open. Everyone had left. We weren't in that situation. And, and I also think we're not a place where stateside charters can just sort of fly in and pop up a shop, right? It doesn't really work that way. When you bring up D.C., actually, you raise some interesting points. Who, in your mind, will be the chartering authority? Is it a national brand like KIPP, or is it, you know, a series of kind of homegrown folks who will be running those schools? Uh, It could be both. I think that a place like KIPP is going to want to consider... Uh, whether this is a good fit for them. And so if the facilities issue isn't um, one that can be worked out or they don't have enough flexibility or the funding doesn't quite match, then, then it's, not, it's not likely to be you know, successful. So while I think they could come, it was great to hear that they have sort of this set of things that's important to them. We're looking for support from um, you know, foundations that would be interested in supporting this work. We want to work with people who've been effective um, standing up schools. But there's also a lot of 
sort of local interest. We have a, some community organizations that have done great things with their kids and want to solidify that and not just deal with them, you know, before school and after school. They want to see if they can run the whole day. So the previous education law talked a lot about these schools of the community. And it was a concept that we never really sort of wound up implementing with Fidelity. We talked about it, but they really had no control. They had no money. They, the conditions were poor. The, dis, the principals didn't make any decisions. And what we're actually going to be able to accomplish with the education reform bill is allowing that concept to actually actually flourish. And, and it's consistent with what is important to the local culture. Secretary Kelleher, thank you. My pleasure. Outside the school gates, there's another story to tell about the ripple effect of Hurricane Maria. Mi nombre es Jose Ortiz. Soy empleado de Tabahuita por muchos años. Estoy para 31 años aquí. I'm 70. <laughs> for 31 years, Jose Ortiz and his wife Maggie have owned the bright green food truck that sits in the school parking lot, ready to serve students, teachers, and parents. Everything from pizza to steaming hot cups of coffee. Okay, toma mami. Lo que tengo adentro es una estufa para hacer pizza y eso, y el café. Tengo una friedora para frir los pastelillos. What sells the best? What, what, what's the favorite thing that people like the most? Here, el pastelillo. That's homemade. Que lo hace mi esposa. Homemade. That's the best. That's the best? Right. Mommy. Even past students of John F. Kennedy Elementary, who are all grown up now, come back for the pastelillos Maggie makes. In between customers, I asked Cortez what would happen to his business if the school closes. I hope to God they won't close it, he tells us. It would affect the neighborhood a lot. The kids, who he calls nenes or dolls, would feel it the most. He's wearing a T-shirt that says, we are all JFK, by the way. Ortiz says his truck has always been around. Parents trust him. He helps the kids who are a few cents short to make sure none of them are ever hungry. And if the school closes, he says it'll be a hard hit on this community. Puerto Rico's recovery from Maria has the potential to reshape the island. And for Governor Ricardo Rosseo, that's a positive. Rosseo has a very specific vision for where he wants Puerto Rico to go. That vision is sometimes in conflict with people on the island, Puerto Rico's various creditors, and the oversight board looking at the island's finances. I sat down with the governor in his office in San Juan. Incidentally, it was the day of the massive blackout, and you can just make out the hum of generators behind us. I asked him what the best model for spending the new HUD money is, given that so many people on the island live in informal housing. One of the opportunities that I think we have is to start eradicating that informal housing uh, component. Uh, start pushing folks into safe, you know, formal ownership. Uh, how, how do we do it? It, it depends on, on where we're at at the island. As you know, we, we have uh, had a, a significant 
a decrease in population in the past uh, couple of decades, and that has lent itself for um, you know a lot of houses to be available or to be owned by the bank. So I think there is an opportunity to leverage uh, in the short run that uh, set of houses. And then the second component of it is uh, implementing what uh, we want uh, to have are the most robust uh, construction codes in the nation. Uh, make sure that we're wary, uh, ready uh, for another uh, hurricane, Category 5, God forbid, but uh, make sure that, that we're worried, uh, uh, ready for it. But the code was updated in 2011. Um, it, it seems to me that enforcement of that might actually do the trick as opposed to just creating another code. Well, there's two. You're, you're correct. There's the enforcement uh, bit of it, uh, but there's also, the, uh, there's also been significant uh, changes, believe it or not, uh, from, from that date uh, onwards. But, but uh, make no mistake about it, enforcing this and, and using this whole... Uh, opportunity with the CDBG funding uh, to make sure that uh, new housing gets built to code, that uh, uh, you know, we have the proper structures to enforce and to execute. Those are going to be critical components. You know how emotional this is. Does that mean going to someone who, say, has lived in informal housing for 20 years and say, you have to go? It's time to go. You know, it's not safe. It's not if, but when another a catastrophic event like this is going to happen, and it's just not worth it. And if we do have the opportunity uh, to use these funds effectively and transparently, why not uh, take this opportunity to make this transition? I mean, I, I, I would understand in the past when uh, resources were not there to make this, this change, uh, but right now it would be a shame if we, don't, if we don't do it. Right now, parents, many teachers, are very angry at you. They're angry at the Secretary of Education about the closures of schools. How do you go forward and have their trust when they think, I I want my kid to go to her school in the morning, I don't understand what's happening? Listen, nobody wants to go to a community and say your your school is closing down. Uh, But it is not a fiscal consideration. It is uh, education consideration. In the past decade, uh, over 43% of our student population has decreased. Uh, We have scattered teachers all over the map we have, most of our schools don't have a full faculty. The objective with, with our uh, program is that we can consolidate those resources, have economies of scale, and uh, we want to give everybody uh, the access to a full faculty so that they can get better, uh, better education. I want to talk about the bond situation a little bit. You all have been forecasting actually a, a better return than the oversight board thought you could make before, maybe some 40 cents on the dollar compared to 25 cents on the dollar. How's that possible? Well, our job right now is not to forecast what, uh, you know, what the bondholders will receive. Or, or that's going to be a Title III uh, consideration, uh, with, again, restructuring court. Uh, our objective is uh, to establish a fiscal plan that uh, has, you know, fiscal measures, uh, but that ha- also has economic growth, uh, structural reforms. Uh, we feel we have done that. Puerto Rico is reducing their budget more than any other state has done in uh, the recent modern history of the United States. Uh, within the next five years, we're essentially reducing anywhere from, uh, uh, you know, almost a fourth of, of our budget, of our expenditures. And that includes health care, education, and, and uh, the size of, of government. So uh, we're doing our part, and then uh, based on that, our fiscal plan has a debt uh, sustainability model. 
And based on that is where uh, some of those calculations come along. Because you're sort of in this delicate place, right? A lot of federal money and some private money is coming into the island. At the same time, you don't want to be in a position where taxpayer money that is intended for rebuilding is going to creditors. And, you know, that obviously can happen directly, but, but it's an uncomfortable dance. How do you make sure that that is what happened, that the rebuilding money goes to rebuilding and not to, to pay off bondholders? Well, we have a rebuilding authority, all right? It doesn't go through our, through our budget. It's, it's going to, uh, uh, to be very transparent, very clear, and, I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, the administration's position, uh, federal administration's position, and, and, and most uh, legislatures are that this money should not be used uh, uh, to pay bondholders. That's, that's obviously my position. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, a disaster recovery uh, effort, and we'll have transparency as to what the projects are being used. And, uh, well, that it, would it, mean audited financials for everything, wouldn't it? it that would mean uh, audited financials for, for the government, uh, of course. Uh, but then uh, a, a set of unprecedented controls that have been placed uh, in collaboration with the federal government for our um, uh, uh, revitalization authorities. I had Secretary LeBoy on my show when you all were in New York uh, <laughs> speaking to the investment conference. And one of the things he and I talked about uh, were pensions. And I know that you have been... Is it, is it safe to say in a bit of opposition to the oversight board about how big those pension cuts should be? Uh, certainly. I mean, there, there's a phil- philosophical divide. I think we've, we've, uh, we've established that. Um, <laughs> for us, uh, making sure that uh, you know, pension recipients uh, get, get their share, uh, it, it's, it's, it's of the utmost importance. It is our view that uh, they are the most vulnerable uh, of individuals in Puerto Rico. They would go under the poverty line if, if this gets uh, executed, many of them anyways. Um, and it has a, a negative impact on the economy as well. In this recovery, both in the near term and thinking about the future, who is in charge? You are the governor. There is a financial oversight board. There is Judge Swain in New York City. And I go around the island and I ask people, and I ask some of the bondholders and their lawyers, who's in charge? And no one can tell me exactly. Well, because this is a novel setting, uh, right? On the fiscal limitation front, the oversight board has has a power on uh, title three uh, the uh, and and of course lending and so forth. The judge has the final say on public policy. I have the, and the government of Puerto Rico have the final say. Now a lot of those things uh, intermingle with each other. My role though is uh, to make sure that we execute and that our powers, uh, you know, delegated to us by the people of Puerto Rico to design public policy and, and to implement it, are not uh, relegated. Uh, I am confident that, you know, with the resiliency, the wherewithal of the people of Puerto Rico, with the resources that we now have uh, to rebuild Puerto Rico, uh, you know, we'll be talking about this recovery in five years as, a, as one that was not only a successful one, but that actually enabled Puerto Rico to... Uh, uh, correct uh, its its path on the economic front, on the fiscal front, and uh, uh, make this for a better society. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you so much. Time for a look at some stories outside of Puerto Rico with this week's news by The Numbers with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 5957126095 
That's how much the Marvel Cinematic Universe has made at the American box office, plus another $8.9 billion internationally. The whole enterprise started with Iron Man, released a decade ago next week. It spans 19 movies, including Captain America, Thor, The Guardians of the Galaxy, The Avengers, and most recently, the mega-hit Black Panther. And this weekend comes Avengers Infinity War, which is slated to open at $230 million, according to Box Office Mojo. $50 million. That's how much Iron Man himself, Robert Downey Jr., made from the first Avengers movie released back in 2012. He's reportedly pulled a similar salary for the other seven movies he's made with Marvel. Scarlett Johansson, Marvel's top-billed woman superhero, reportedly earned far less than Downey for Avengers Age of Ultron, but made as much or more than her other male co-stars. It's worth noting that Johansson's character, Black Widow, has appeared in six Marvel movies, but never starred in her own. Thirteen. That's how many more movies Marvel has slated through 2022. Despite the fact that this weekend's Avengers movie is being billed as the beginning of the end. The slate includes Marvel's first movies with women in the title roles. After a decade of mostly white dudes, the fight for equality continues. Not to mention the fight against theater seat butt numbness. Infinity War is right. Earlier in the show, we brought you stories from Puerto Rico. Now, a very different set of housing and education challenges, ones that come with wealth, oil wealth specifically. Marketplace's Andy Euler spent a week in West Texas in the heart of the Permian Basin, where oil production has tripled in the past five years, and prices are inching towards $70 a barrel. Andy, thanks for joining us. Hey, Lizzie. So tell me what is weighing on the minds of people in oil country, particularly as prices are, you know, headed way back up. Midland Odessa metro area, which is where basically the bulk of the oil production in the Permian Basin happens, it's consistently ranked among the highest median income areas in the whole country. It's crazy. It's like one uh, city in Connecticut and then this West Texas Permian Basin area is Hmm. Sitting at about sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars per household, and unemployment's the fifth lowest in the U.S. They say if you want a job, um, you can get one here if you can if you can do the work. But when so many people kind of come to to this area to work, home builders can't build fast enough, so the rental prices skyrocket. I met a guy who said he has a three thousand square foot house that he bought a few years ago. And his realtor buddy said he could rent it out for $4,500 a month. So he's literally thinking about renting his house out because he can make so much money because the rental prices are just crazy. It, it's, it's supply and demand. I mean, apartments have three-month waiting lists. RV parks are charging way more than anywhere else in Texas. And if you're not making that money, there's this sort of income imbalance happening there. If you're not making money in the oil field, you're going to be hard-pressed. To, to actually afford a spot or, or if you can even find one. Well, so how does this translate into other things? You know, on the show, yeah. we were talking about education in Puerto Rico. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that is a lack of funding question. When you have so much money pouring into a community, do mm-hmm. you see that resonate in, say, the schools? That's one of the hardest things to wrap your head around when you visit Midland Odessa. The major oil companies pay billions of dollars in tax money to produce out there. And that money and, – and, and you can talk to local officials about it. They're not very happy about what happens to that money because a lot of it goes back to Austin, to the state capital here. 
and, and really not a whole lot um, is, is sort of directed back into the Permian. The Midland School District consistently underperforms. So you have this area with tons of money, like you were saying, but the schools don't sort of match up. Teachers consistently get poached. Um, they, they work at private schools. They go to other school districts because they're willing to pay more money. So you have this boom town. And, and then you have to and, – and you talk to Midlanders about this too. There is this, this mentality of the bust is going to come. And so classroom size and need for teachers fluctuates almost as quickly as the price accrued. You can't just build a bunch of schools because you have so many more kids than you did a few months ago because, again, in a month, it could be down to $40 a barrel and you're in the same situation that you were in. Those brand new schools are, you know, people are just walking around in empty schools. It's crazy. While there is this money flowing in, we're still talking about, you know, West Texas, um, very different from where you are. Mm -hmm. How does it feel right now? Is that money going into permanent things in the community or no? The pace is pretty slow. Many of the permanent residents, um, you know, they've been there for a long time uh, and they're super reluctant to change. But again, there's so much money out here, and, and when oil money is sort of centered in one place, it feels like there are, in fact, business opportunities to be had. I stopped into actually a wine and coffee bar that had just opened up, something that people in big cities are certainly familiar with. Um, it, it felt complete. I'm going to be honest, it felt completely out of place in Midland. Uh, but the owner, Ray Blanchard, said that was on purpose. We have a lot of younger professionals out here that are making good money, and they want a nice place to come and enjoy something that they're familiar with, you know, something that they're used to in the Houstons, the Dallases, the Denvers, the larger cities that they come from. And that's really what we're trying to provide. It really does feel like something you'd see in a major metropolitan area, except it's in a shopping center in the heart of oil country. I asked Blanchard about how folks sort of are responding to the space. It's only been there for a few months, so, you know, how are they? How, what do they think? I think we get some some blowback from from folks. Um, they don't quite understand why they're paying twelve dollars for a glass of wine, whereas mm-hmm. almost everywhere else in town serves them six dollar glasses. We're trying to to show them that there are other things out there. So when you talk about those sort of fancier experiences, um, mm-hmm. do people stick around and do those, or are they getting out of town on the weekends? What's all this new money doing? Yeah, Ray Blanchard says their spot is actually busier on weekdays than on weekends. And that's the biggest problem. The, the competition for patrons isn't within Midland Odessa. It's people taking weekend trips because they can just afford to do it. I actually spoke with a Midland real estate agent, Myra McKinley, about exactly that. They have so much money that they fly private <laughs> to wherever it is that they want to go. If I want to go have a nice golf weekend, then I'm going to go run off to Escondido. Or if I want to have some great meals, maybe I'll just go ahead and fly over to Las Vegas. Guess what? We make enough money right now that we can do that. So why not? Wow. It, it's, <laughs> I, I know. And, and she's sort of speaking for, for that, you know, big oil tycoon. And that's the crazy thing, the crazy amount of money flowing into the area. And you can take weekend trips to San Diego or Las Vegas and, and just go for a weekend or go for a meal Yet the schools are underperforming and the housing situation is so dire for so many of the people out in Midland. It's it, I really left there thinking this is a land of straight up cognitive dissonance. That was Marketplace's Andy Euler, And you can read more of his reporting from the Permian Basin at Marketplace.org. Andy, thanks. No, thank you, Lizzie. 
Every month, we check in with Allison Green from Ask a Manager. She answers all of your work-life questions, standard ones like how to write a good resume, or the somewhat bananas ones from her blog, like what to do after you've bitten a coworker. Seriously, you should read it. Now, Allison has a book of advice. It's called Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. Allison, welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, so now we've got the book, but can you kind of rewind a little bit? Obviously, we know you on the show, but, but tell us a little bit about how you started writing workplace advice columns in the first place. I was working as the chief of staff for a nonprofit organization, and I kept seeing signs that employees and job seekers would benefit so much from getting more of an understanding of how managers think. And I found that there were a lot of career advice websites out there, but I didn't see anyone giving advice from the perspective of a manager, someone who would say, okay, here's what your manager or your interviewer is thinking when you say X, or here's what your boss means when she says Y. And I felt like that approach could be helpful to you. Honestly, I thought I would write the blog for a few months, no one would read it, and that would be the end of it. But it turned out I think there's a real hunger out there for help figuring out how to navigate more nuanced workplace situations. You know, there's a lot of places to go to get advice on, like, how do I write a cover letter or how do I negotiate salary? But it's turned out my bread and butter at Ask a Manager has really been the stuff that's like, my coworker keeps hugging me and I want her to stop. Or how do I come back after being noticeably drunk at the office party? That kind of more nuanced, specific stuff is what I think has really driven the site. I mean, the site and the book are really about navigating interpersonal relationships. And I guess one thing I'm curious about is, you know, a lot of these are behaviors that we know how to handle in any other context. What makes people freeze up about trying to figure them out at work? I think most people are pretty uncomfortable with conflict in general. But it's especially true at work because your livelihood depends on maintaining pretty good relationships with people and having tension can make your day-to-day quality of life pretty difficult. And I think, too, when people have a conversation that feels like it could be awkward, when they picture it in their heads, for some reason, the version that we imagine is much more awkward and adversarial than it really needs to be. And that's something that I really try to focus on at Ask a Manager, both in the book and on the website, is saying, no, there's this other way that you can approach it. There's language you can use that you can probably imagine yourself saying, and it's not going to feel horrible, and it's not going to cause you weeks of awkwardness afterward. Right. Well, I, I want to get into then this idea of focusing on tone. Tell me a little bit about how important tone is at work and why you focused on it. Tone is almost everything, I think. So often, especially when people wait a long time to address the situation because they don't want to do it, by the time they finally do, at that point, their frustration has built up. And so the tone comes out kind of irritated or hostile or just more adversarial than would be ideal. So what I say is try to use a tone that's really similar to the same one that you would use to raise any other work-related problem. So if you think of the tone that you would use to say, hey, I'm having trouble with this software, or the printer isn't doing what I want. Can you help me figure this out? That kind of just very matter-of-fact, collaborative, let's solve this problem together tone. That's the tone that you want. One of the things that comes up again and again is talking to the boss. 
Are there, do you think, time-tested strategies in how to do that and also how to um, remain calm? Yeah, I think so. One is to try to emotionally detach. People tend to get pretty worked up emotionally a lot of the time yeah. when they're talking to their boss about something important. And that's understandable. I mean, your livelihood is at stake. This is someone who has a lot of power over your work life and your day-to-day quality of life. But the more that you can approach it from an emotionally detached place and keep your ego out of it, the more likely you are to get the outcome you want. Um, so if your boss is giving you some critical feedback and it's making you feel kind of defensive, you're not so likely to process what she's really saying. But if you are able to stay calm and kind of emotionally disconnect from it, you can ask for more information. You can get more. You can hear more about what she thinks. You can share what you think. And you're likely to respond in a way that reflects better on you and is more productive. Hmm. And when you're the boss, how do you stay in the right dynamic? Yeah, I think the big thing for managers is that to realize that the kindest thing that you can do for your employees is to be very, very clear. You know, you're going to have to have tough conversations as a boss. You're going to have to give feedback. You're going to have to deliver bad news. And sometimes in an effort to be kind, managers will sugarcoat or they'll hide the message or they'll hint. And it's not kind. It's actually unkind because if you're anything other than straightforward, especially when there's something you need someone to change about what they're doing, there's a risk that the person will come out of that conversation having missed the most important parts of the message. Hmm. And if you want them to succeed at work, I mean, this is, they need to hear your feedback. They need to know what you think of their performance and what, if anything, you want them to be doing differently because it will affect everything from their assignments to their performance reviews to the type of raises they get, even potentially to whether they're able to stay in that job. So they deserve to hear the truth. And it's kind to let someone know, here's what success will look like. You have a whole section here talking about a lot of difficult issues that you and I have talked about over the past six months. Sexual harassment, offensive jokes, uh, racist remarks, unwanted touching. Walk me through how you sort of advise people on how to handle different things like this. Yeah, those are that's a category where speaking up is really important and not optional. With most of the other topics that I cover in the book and on the website – it's, it's generally up to you if you want to speak up or not. But when it's something like harassment or discrimination or unwanted touching or bigoted remarks, you do have to say something. Even if you think to yourself, well, I'm willing to put up with this for other reasons even though I don't like it, you still really should speak up because this might be a pattern of behavior that the person is also doing to or around other people. There's also liability to your employer if this stuff is yeah. going on and no one is reporting it. Um, You can say something in the moment to the person. You can say, please stop doing that. That's unwelcome. If you're not comfortable saying that, and many times people aren't, then talk to your boss or talk to HR. Allison Green is now the author of Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. Allison, thank you. Thank you. For more tips from Allison Green, check out our Ask a Manager series. Just go to marketplace.org. This week, we dedicated much of the show to the recovery effort in Puerto Rico. Remember, you can listen to all our coverage at Marketplace.org. Just look for Economics of Disaster. 
And if you're on Instagram, check out some of the images from our trip, and you can see some of the people we met. We're at Marketplace APM. And because we're always working on stories we hope you find interesting, we'd like your input on a special we're producing on the economics of disability. How has disability in any form impacted your life, at home, at work, or at school? And what does it mean for healthcare? What do you wish people would understand about living life with a disability or caring for someone with one? You can send us your comments, questions, and stories. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org or leave a message on our voicemail line. It's talk to text. The number is 1-800-648-5114. And we look forward to sharing your stories. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen, Paulina Velasco, and Eliza Mills, with special help on our Puerto Rico coverage from Ronald Perez and Erica Romero. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and thanks for listening. This is APM.